This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, and Chris. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Ian O'Connor. Ian O'Connor is a journalist, a sports columnist for the New York Post, and the author of the new book, Coach K, The Rise and Reign of Mike Krzyzewski. During our conversation, Ian talks about Coach K's early life and career, the lesser-known, darker aspects of his personality, the juxtaposition of his love and loyalty towards his players, and the fear he engenders and the rage he could exhibit, his relationship with Bobby Knight, his marriage with his wife Mickey, the love and respect Coach K has from his former players, the importance of relationships in his life, his daily habits, and whether Coach K is the greatest basketball coach of all time. Coach K has had a profound influence on my life. I read books about him in middle school, and his message of excellence and hard work resonated with me from an early age. I was obsessed with going to Duke, and as a student in Durham, in close proximity to his program, I was exposed both to his many admirable qualities and the fundamental humanness and flaws of an amazingly successful head coach. Ian perhaps put it best, while Coach K is not a nice guy, he is a good man. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ian O'Connor. Ian O'Connor, thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Thanks for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So we're going to talk a lot about uh, a man today who's had a big influence on on my life and many people's lives, um, Coach K. And I'd love to start by learning about your own interest in him. Uh, where does that stem from? What's the story about what got you interested in this man in the first place? So what was the date? Was it March 28th, 1992? I was sitting courtside, I believe it was the 28th, in uh, Philadelphia in the Spectrum. And uh, I knew Bobby Hurley in high school some. I grew up in northern New Jersey, not far from where he played at the St. Anthony Powerhouse for his father, Bob Hurley Sr., and so follow him to Duke and, and then, of course, was around that program a little bit, not as a beat writer or anything, but I covered some of those uh, Duke uh, classic games and certainly in 91 in the Final Four and 92, here we are in the spectrum and down one with 2.1 seconds left in the greatest basketball game, college or pro I've ever seen in 37 years of doing this. And I guess it starts with him convincing his players as they walk to the huddle and those players were thinking about the offseason and, well, at least we won it last year and and golf and going to the beach. And and in that huddle with 2.1 seconds left in overtime against Kentucky, after Sean Woods made that bank shot, he convinced them that they could win that game and they could pull it off. And if this wasn't the NBA, they, they still had to go the length of the floor to get this thing done. Hmm. So I think, uh, Dan, it was that night in Philadelphia, the fact that he was able to pull that off and really persuade his kids that that we could do this. And they did. And I remember when Leitner made the shot as it left his hand. I was right across the floor from him. It, I felt like I was right behind his right shoulder. And I remember Tim Layden of then of Newsday was sitting to my left. And we both said as soon as he shot it based on our angle, you could tell it was going in. Hmm. And of course, that night now, he didn't miss a shot from the free throw line or, or the field. So it took the perfect player to, to really win the perfect game. And I remember looking across at Krzyzewski and I thought he had an odd reaction. He had a towel in his hand and he spiked it like you would spike a football in the end zone. And, and after what I asked him in the press conference, outside of strategy, what did you tell your players in that final huddle? And he said, we will win this game. We are going to win this game. And so ever since that night and that moment, I was really fascinated by him and just how he built that program. Yeah. And your book is rather comprehensive in telling his life story. And 
the beginning of it starts with his tale of a being a young boy in Chicago and it's a long trajectory from a middle class working class family in in Chicago um i think his father is an immigrant how do you make sense of his his rise from the beginning were there indications in your research that this was somebody rather special from a rally, rather early age in his life well from a leadership standpoint i would say yes and actually his parents were the children of polish immigrants their their, their parents had gone through the whole ellis island experience and his father actually changed his name from Krzyzewski to Cross to avoid discrimination. Uh, and uh, Mike didn't change his name. He thought about it. But his uncle, who was a police officer, Uncle Joe, mm. convinced him not to do that. Do not change your name like your father did. And so he didn't. But but I think he he was always the organizer. They had a group. They called themselves the Columbos because of the Columbus uh, school nearby. And it was a gang in name only. The real gangs left them alone because they thought they were harmless. They were just a bunch of kids who were sports crazy. But Mike was always the leader, the organizer. And I believe he was in seventh grade. He might have been in eighth grade, but I want to say seventh grade, St. Helens. He, he went to the principal and said he wanted to start a basketball team to compete in the CYO League. And he was denied that chance. They said they weren't interested in having a basketball team. And so Mike started one of his own. And they traveled around different neighborhoods and, and competed against teams of the same age. And, and it was really his first winning program that he built at age 12. And so, I don't know, it seems to me that he was a born leader. And I, I, and obviously those skills were, were honed at West Point, which he always calls the greatest leadership academy or place in the world. Hmm. But I, I think he, his communication skills, and I've been told this by so many people at Duke, players, coaches, administrators that when he has you one-on-one -on -one behind closed doors and he's trying to connect with you, he could, regardless of your age, your race, your gender, your financial background, he could really make you feel like you're the only other person in the world at that moment. And I think that's a, a pretty rare gift and, and a big part of the reason why he's probably the greatest college basketball coach of all time. Yeah. You, you detail the story of the courtship between he and the woman who, be, who would become his, the, his wife and the mother of his children. What's the role that Mickey Krzyzewski has played in, in his life? And what's the story of their, their courtship in general, their meeting? Why, why did they end up together? Huh. Well, it, it was the, uh, the physical attraction at first, uh, particularly from Mike's end. I know some of his friends thought that she was out of his league. She was a flight attendant, a very striking woman. And uh, but, uh, they met and, and it was nothing profound and, uh, they started dating. She was a, a big sports fan. Mm. And I think that helped the, the connection. And, uh, I would say this about Mickey. I think she really has been the co-head coach over the years at Duke and not the associate head coach, but, but the co-head coach, cause she was involved in every major and minor decision in that basketball program. Now in recent years, I think she backed off that some as they both got older but uh, I would say in the, doing this almost for four decades, I've never been uh, across a coach who or come across a coach who involved his spouse more than than Mike Krzyzewski did. Mm -hmm. And I did have players say to me that uh, the way he uh, the respect he showed his wife and daughters and the way he empowered his wife was a lesson for them and just how to treat women. And and that, uh, frankly, that's a more important lesson than anything you could teach on a basketball court. So uh, she was she was as involved as you could be as a spouse. And when he got the job at West Point in 1975, she made him promise, hey, we're going into a male dominated society. I do not want to be excluded from your professional life. So outside of the men's locker room, I want to be able to go everywhere with you. And he promised and he kept that promise, not only at West Point, but also at Duke. And so, so their relationship, and you saw at the end, every final press conference, final game, final home game, final NCAA tournament game, what did he do when he left the floor? He grabbed her hand. And, and I do think that was genuine. Yeah. You know, Coach K has been the head coach at Duke for my entire life. I think you just said he became the, the head coach at West Point in 1975. And the stories are fairly well known about him in the early years of Duke when he was in his 30s. 
nearly getting fired. And I, I'm sure you have thought a lot about this as to whether a Coach K would survive in modern times, given the poor record he had for the first few years there at Duke. What's that story about how he came in? How was he heralded? How was he selected? And what were those first few years like for him? Well, he was nine and 17 in his last year at Army. So I don't even know how he got the job, frankly. Yeah. Uh, the field of candidates wasn't terribly strong. But Duke was a good basketball program. They had gone to the national championship game in, in 1978 under Bill Foster, who decided to leave. He wasn't getting along with the AD at the time, Tom Butters. But Butters had a gut feel on Krzyzewski. Krzyzewski uh, did have some supporters. Bob Knight was one. Steve Vesendak, former uh, player and an administrator, uh, administrator at the time, was a Krzyzewski fan uh, in large part because he believed strongly in, in, in having a, a tough, sound, strong defense. And also his previous work at Army was, was pretty damn good. But still, as an ACC school, how do you hire a 9-17 and 17 coach at Army hmm. who nobody had ever heard of and nobody could pronounce or spell his name? So I think there's no way he gets that job today. No way. And then three years in, Tom Butters, the AD who hired him, doubled down and gave him a contract extension. And at the time, that seemed like a crazy move. It turned out to be maybe the, the greatest move in the history of college basketball. But Krzyzewski thought he was gone and the boosters, the alums, the faculty, the students, everyone wanted him gone. There was a scene in the book, year two, they lose at Princeton. This is early in year two. And so one of the assistant coaches, Bobby Dwyer, is looking for Coach K after the game and can't find him at Princeton. So he's walking down a hallway and he's opening doors and he found him behind one of those doors sitting alone crying. And it's, it's hard to picture that, but. That's where he was. And then year three, losing to Wagner at home. And that was a bad Wagner team. I don't know if that team won six or seven games in, in a small Division One conference in, in New York. So here's Jim Valvano next door winning the national title. Dean Smith in 82 won it the year before next door. And Mike's losing at home to Wagner. So, so everyone wanted him out. And it's a miracle he survived it. And then everything changed. And it's uh, it really changed on one recruiting class. And Without that class, he he would have been fired at some point in the next two or three years. Yeah, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to talk about that class. The heralded, I believe it was the 1986 class, headlined by Johnny Dawkins. Talk about that class a little bit, who those guys were and what they ended up meaning to the future of the Duke basketball program. Jay Billis, Mark Allery, Henderson, and Dawkins were were the main guys, but it was really Dawkins and everybody else. Allery was was a really good. He was by far the second best player in that group, and of course, played for a number of years in the NBA. But it was Dawkins and pretty much everybody else. And that was the first time Coach K got a recruit and a player who he could match up with the type of players that Dean Smith was putting on the floor on a regular basis. And so, without that, he doesn't make it. But at first off, Dan, the, the most heartbreaking recruiting loss he ever suffered was Chris Mullen. Mm. And that was the year before. And Mullen, of course, went to St. John's. And to this day, I think that was the one that really stung and he felt could have changed the program a year early. But he didn't get him. He finished second on Chris Mullen. And, and, and Johnny Dawkins later turned out to be a great, great player for him. Got him to the national championship game in, in 1986 a game that Duke should have won and lost in large part because of a coaching decision that uh, Coach K made at the end of that game. But yeah, it was uh, it was a really, and that class struggled early on. And the seniors at the time, the upperclassmen struggled to accept them. There was a divide there that mm -hmm. first year with that group. And I have some of the scenes in, in the book where there's a couple of those guys and one ultimately uh, Bill Jackman transferred to Nebraska where he was from he was unhappy with his playing time and, and the, the upperclassmen, the seniors were unhappy with the way that these, these freshmen were being treated by Coach K and others. And they were sort of being cast aside as Bill Foster players who weren't very good or certainly weren't as good as the freshmen were. Hmm. So Coach K had some issues he had to sort through there. And he really, in year two, that's when they started to, year two with that, that recruiting class is when they finally started to, to get things going and turn Duke into the kind of program it was years later. Yeah, it does seem like early in his career, he had the good fortune of having the confidence of the AD, the confidence of his former coach. And then, as you said, getting the talent required to actually build a, 
a, a team that could d- contend for a national championship. I remember, I think Jay Billis saying once that in his time, Johnny Dawkins was the Allen Iverson of that era. And I'm wondering if, if in your research, if you learned or if you have an intuition as to how Coach K at that time, a relatively unsuccessful college basketball coach was able to persuade a player of that caliber to come to his program because it, it feels like without those successes of getting raw talent like a Johnny Dawkins, you can be the best strategist in the world and never actually compete for a national championship. How was he able to talk players like like Johnny or Johnny specifically into taking a chance on him? I think it was those uh, communication skills I mentioned earlier, Dan, really, because although I would say Dawkins was probably a tad slightly under-recruited, even though everyone knew him and, and he was a great high school player, but he was so skinny. Yeah. That when Jay Billis showed up at his home for the first time, he thought it was his younger brother who answered the door. He couldn't believe this was Johnny Dawkins, <laughs> the great Johnny Dawkins. And then he said, we, we played a pickup game and five minutes in, I was like, oh, okay, now I get it. Um, but I think Coach K's re- uh, communication skills, because he actually wasn't a great strategist, he was a motivator, the best ever, and just someone who was an underrated recruiter because we didn't really see that part of it, right? And behind closed doors, what I what I mentioned earlier, that he could make you feel like the only other person in the world at that time. And so he was a great salesman and, and just a, a great coach who could connect with pretty much anyone. And so Dawkins actually had a conversation with his father where he was a little concerned about, well, Duke is at North Carolina, right? And at that point, it was sort of a a second-tier, third-tier program in the ACC. And his father said something to the effect of, well, do you think you're good? And Dockett said, yeah, I'm good. And then his father said, well, then Duke will be good too. And he said, okay. you know, And he liked Coach K a lot, liked the campus, and decided to take on the challenge of, of, of leading a program as, a, as opposed to joining one that was already set. Mm. And so that's how it started. And I wouldn't say Dawkins was an Iverson level player. He was probably a notch below that, but pretty good enough to, to get them to the national championship game that senior year. And I mentioned earlier that coach K decision uh, late in that game to with uh, only about a four point lead, slow it down, work the clock, take the air out of the ball. And as soon as he did it, Billy Packer on the CBS national broadcast said, uh, this is a mistake. And it was, and I think that mistake haunted coach K for years until Duke finally won it all. Yeah. I will say personally, just in my own life, I I got exposed to, to coach K when I was in middle school and I read a bunch of books about him. I read his book leading with the heart and it had a profound influence on me and from a very early age, I marked Duke as where I wanted to go to school. And I was thinking about this last night as I was preparing preparing for this conversation that there was something about coach that I don't think I had ever seen in an adult male, which was in an adult male who was also as successful as he was, which was his um, his public open-heartedness and emotionality. And the ability to merge being successful, a warrior in sports while also, you know, crying at banquets and crying in interviews when talking about his team. He had, he seemed to have access to his softer side in a way that I don't think I remember ever seeing in somebody at his level of prominence and esteem in American culture. And I know for me personally, that really spoke to me that I guess this is where men who want to be great and who have that side of themselves that they see in themselves can go to cultivate both excellence and and open heartedness. And I ended up going there and I was there. I was in JJ Reddick's class and graduated in 2006. And I still hold coach in very high esteem. He had, I think, overall an incredible... He doesn't know me. I've met him a couple of times, but just in his example, I think has had a massive influence on me. You know, That being said, and 
you know, my brothers rib me about this. People who hate Duke will say this, you know, he's a human being and he's flawed like we all are. And I think you detail aspects of him that uh, are showing that he is, he is human. And I, I'd like to just go over to dispel the sainthood of coach K, you know, from, and get your take on how you think about him as a, as a human, you detail in the, in the book, the story in 1990, where the Duke Chronicle writes an article about his program that he finds to be uh, dismissive and um, not complimentary enough of, of his program. There's another video that I watched last night where Jeff Capel, who was the coach at Pitt, came to campus. And I think Coach K misunderstood what the Cameron Crazies were chanting. And, and this one you can actually see on video. There is a rage about him that can be triggered in certain contexts. And I, I couldn't find the audio from the 1990 meeting that the Chronicle reporter was able to record, given the fact that he brought in secretly a tape recorder, as I understand it, and listened to and recorded that conversation. Talk about those two stories if you can, and talk about the that aspect of Coach K that I think surprises a lot of people who see him in, on interviews. And as you said, he's a he is a smooth, warm, um, persuasive, kindly grandfather at this point. But there is a shadow side to him that may have been in you know instrumental in his success. Talk about that. What did you uncover about this man and, and the way that that rage and aggressiveness fuel him in his career and in his success? Well, first off, Dan, I, I think the uh, the emotion you, you've talked about, the places he can go emotionally that others do not or cannot as great leaders. Uh, that That's something I, I never saw. My previous subject was Belichick. Yeah, that's not something you'd ever see in him. So I agree with you on that on that front. I think it, a lot of this, the, the competitive rage really starts in childhood and watching his parents who didn't have high school educations labor their entire lives for wealthy people. And his father was an elevator operator and later ran an unsuccessful uh, tavern. His mother was a cleaning lady for wealthy people. And I, I think that was part of the competitive rage to see his father's name effectively be taken away from him, at least temporarily. And so uh, I think that was really the, the fire that built the, the Duke program. And, and so it starts as a, as a blue collar kid in Chicago who he wasn't poor. Mm. They had what they needed, Mike and his big brother, Bill. But just watching some of those things and seeing what his parents endured and fighting for a better life. I think he was taught early that uh, people will try to take things away from you in this country. So you have to fight to make your own way and to keep what you have and, and everything is earned. And I, I would say that the first story you mentioned about the, uh, the Duke uh, sports staff at, at the Chronicle. And it, the, if you go back and look at the two articles that really allegedly offended him, they were so benign. It was like, he wanted an A plus for somebody or the team that got a B plus and, and one of the student reporters had done grades, midterm grades, and it wasn't the most uh, profoundly original material uh, in a newspaper. But uh, I believe the team uh, as a whole and players were graded and most of them were very positive B pluses, A's, A minuses. And Krzyzewski had an issue with that. And and, and he had an issue with some other story that was really benign, too. It was ridiculous. But I think he was, what he was trying to do was he was trying to show his players that he would stick up for them. Mm. And he was going to use the student uh, staff of the Chronicle as, as a means of doing that. So uh, he invites them down to, to Cameron Indoor Stadium. They are ushered. There's about 10 of them into the locker room, an empty locker room at the time. They're seated in chairs. Then the players come in and surround them standing. And then Krzyzewski comes charging in. And uh, one of the students who taped it without uh, Krzyzewski's knowledge said he, uh, Krzyzewski got right in his face and was yelling just profanities and just right up in his, in his grill and saying some pretty tough and degrading things, all of which uh, ended up on tape. And ultimately, 
it was uh, a portrait of Coach K that that America was not aware of that that suddenly went national because after the Chronicle wrote about it based on the tape, uh, publications like the New York Times picked it up. It became a pretty big national story. And he was wounded by that. I don't know if he ever really fully recovered from that. It's part of the reason why he started looking more closely at leaving for the NBA and the Celtics uh, first off later on the trailblazers and, and then the Lakers. But I've had people tell me that his relationship with the student body was never quite the same after that. And I think he just didn't understand the role of student journalists. It's, it's not to the, the newspaper, the Chronicle, it, it was not there to be an arm of the uh, media relations department of Duke university. And as a West Point guy who he just probably didn't understand that or didn't accept it, but he found out the hard way that uh, that is not the case. And uh, so he is uh, he's always been thin skinned, uh, very has a lot of trouble accepting full responsibility, though he holds other people to that standard quite a bit. And in the in the Jeff Capel case, here is here is an example of Coach K. Uh, misunderstanding what the fans are chanting. They're chanting something positive toward Jeff Capel because he was a Duke player and graduate. You're one of us. Sit with us. Sit with us. Coach K goes crazy. And then when he realizes after the game that he shouldn't have been berating the Cameron crazies because they were chanting something positive toward the opposing coach, he says, okay, I was wrong, but you were wrong too. Let's not chant anything at the visiting coach. Let's come up with more intelligent chants more appropriate chance, whatever it was. And it was just, there've been many cases over the years where he would say something to the effect of I was wrong. And instead of just leaving it at that and and saying, let's, let's move on. I'll learn from this. I'll get better. He would then assign blame to you or somebody else and make sure that he wasn't alone in accepting the blame. And, and I think that you might argue these are relatively minor or benign flaws, but I think there's a guy who uh, was maybe held up as a saint-like figure and the overlord of the last shining city on top of a largely corrupt hill that is major cause athletics. But he had his flaws as a human being. I would say he was a great leader, by all accounts, a, a good husband and father. But I would not say he is or was a nice guy. And I I suspect most great leaders who are males, you would not call nice guys. And I would not define him as a nice guy. Yeah. And to hone in on that, and I don't mean to be too hard on the guy because I I do think he's accomplished amazing things in his life. You can see it in his former players, how much respect they have for him and and how much he has influenced their lives. But to, to focus in on that characteristic of him, you just said that you would not consider him a nice guy. I think from a PR perspective, if all you knew about Coach K were his post-game interviews, you would think he was the sweetest man <laughs> on the face of the earth. And you know, I've I've heard you say this in other interviews that you know grandmothers across America fall in love with Coach K when they get to know him, when he walks into their living rooms and recruits their grand grandchildren. Talk about the not a nice guy assessment of him. He clearly has moments where he can be very present and giving and generous and defensive of his team. But is your assessment of that really rooted in a ruthlessness about him? A, a you know, when when he erupted on the on the Duke student body and he looks like someone who is possessed. And at that point in his life, I think he's a 70-year-old grandfather who has already won a thousand games. Uh, you know, his place in college basketball history has always been maintained, but there is a a trigger or a snapping in him that seems to be you know beyond his control in some capacity. Talk about that. Why is it that you think that you know you would not describe him as as a nice man? And if you wouldn't describe him that way, how would you describe him? A good man, but not yeah. necessarily a nice guy. I think those are two different things. I really do. And I'm not sure. I know for a fact he would not have won 1,200 games if he were a nice guy. I just that's just the way it is at the highest level of major college athletics. And for example, his associate head coach Chris Carrowell played for uh, Coach K, was a very good player, ACC Player of the Year. 
And after he decided to break a play at the end of a game against St. John's and it snapped some long winning streak that Duke had in Cameron against non-conference opponents and they lost and he made the wrong play, but he acted on instinct as an upperclassman, as a leader, he saw something or he thought he did in the defense and he changed the play on his own and it failed in the locker room after the game and players who were there tell me it is the worst berating they've ever witnessed of any player on any level. And so he let Carwell have it and got personal and, and Carwell was really wounded by it. And Carwell was a tough kid from a very tough neighborhood in, in St. Louis. And, and people who were there say across the line, it just, it got ugly. And so they got past it. And even, even Shane Battier, who is uh, just the ultimate role model for, for college athletes. It's like, you have uh, Shane Battier Duke to me was like Bill Bradley at Princeton. It was just, yep. and, and so even he said it was shockingly heated. And so I think coach K would have liked to have that one back, but he has a history of saying some really tough and degrading things in the faces of his players when he thinks they've, they've done something wrong. And so when I say I wouldn't define him as a nice guy, that's what I mean. He has that competitive rage that he could, as you said earlier, Dan, look possessed, demonic, and something snaps inside of him and it's that competitor. Maybe it's that blue collar street kid from Chicago coming out again. But, and, and, and remember as a cadet at West Point, as a young cadet, he was berated by, by upperclassmen, not any more than other cadets, but mm-hmm. that was part of the culture there. And that's how you, you were taught to lead. So I, I think he learned some of that there. And, and, Coach K is someone who I remember sitting behind his bench for the first time or right behind him in 1999 in the Sweet 16 in, in New Jersey. And the profanity was, I curse, I wasn't offended by it, but it was relentless and extreme for two hours and 15 minutes, almost nonstop at players, officials, even a couple of his assistants, Quinn Snyder. And uh, so it was part of him just trying to win. And so many of his players told me that all he cares about is winning that the image, that part of it is a nice sidebar to him, but it's not nearly as important to him as just beating you finding a way at the end of the day to go to bed, knowing he's still ahead of you. Yeah. That's his mission every day. And again, that's why he went to 13 final fours and won 1200 plus games. And no male coach will ever break that record in part because of, of that intensity that ferocity in his approach. And it's just a part of who he was. Yeah. And do you read that, you know, that, that story about Carowell, I know that this has happened to plenty of other players who he just rips into. It's really an intentional psychological approach to leadership in which the leader gains respect from his players, from people who are under him, that, that it's actually a long-term strategic move or do you think that that's something at the core of his personality that he has a hard time controlling? <laughs> I think it's a little bit of both. <laughs> yeah, I really do. You know, he knew that Carwell is one of the toughest kids he ever recruited. Carwell changed the Duke program. And he was a totally untraditional Duke recruit. And uh, going back to Tim O'Toole was an assistant there for, for two or three years and he was big on, hey, we need this. We're talking now mid to late 90s. We need to start recruiting kids from non-traditional Duke backgrounds. And, and they would talk about race privately. And there were some assistants there who thought, hey, we're too preppy. We're too white. We need to change to uh, compete at the highest level of, of Division One. And Carowell sort of signals a change in, in recruiting approach. And even he said, he goes, I, nobody from Duke ever – came around where I lived. It was just not that Duke was never on anyone's radar in my neighborhood. When it rained outside our house, it rained inside our house. And, Mm. and basically he said uh, it was a, a a life and existence of, of poverty and crime that he had to navigate. And he's a pretty remarkable story. So, but other, other players down the road said Carol going to Duke impacted their decision to go to Duke. So whether it was Will Avery or Elton Brand and, and, uh, but I think, that was a case of him losing control, feel, taking it personally, uh, this, this decision by, even though he had told his players, I don't want you to be robots out there. You need to act on instinct. Well, Carwell did. 
And the result wasn't what Coach K wanted. So it was personal. But I think long term, he realized that Carroll could he was one of the few players who could take a berating like that and still be effective later on. And maybe it sent a message to other players. Don't you dare ever do something like this Hmm. who witnessed it. But Coach K, it was not a church social in there, that program. (laughs) And I think a lot of people, when they hear these stories and read some of them in my book and listen, he had, as you know, Dan, as, as a Duke basketball follower over the years, a, a number of kids transferred in large part because of that approach. They couldn't deal with it. Yeah. And so Duke basketball was not for everyone. It was not. And I don't think Coach K is afraid to admit that. And uh, I'm sure there were some scenes in the book he wished uh, were not in there uh, that showed that side of his personality, his, that explosive side of his personality. But again, it was part of his being. And, and I felt for it to be an honest uh, book it, that had to be included. And it should be noted that Chris Carwell, who I loved watching as a kid, I got to know him a little bit when I was at Duke, um, came back after he was a player and became a coach at Duke. And I think is still currently on staff. He is, yeah. And, yeah. I, you know, I, I'm wondering for yourself if you think that the, you know, respect that he gets from his players, his, the obedience that he gets from his players I know just as being as a former student there who got to know people associated with the basketball program, there was an element of fear that was palpable, <laughs> I think, for for players who were around him. And I, I think you may have already essentially answered this question, but do you think he becomes who he becomes without having an an a, a real strong sense of fear in the program by these top talented kids who come in from all over the country and decide to play for him. Is that, you know, a a crucial component of his success in general? Yes. (laughs) I think fear was a a very important uh, weapon, if you will, or tool in his toolbox to use. And I think you could say that not just in sports, but, but whether it's in the military and politics that fear is, is a powerful tool. And, and I think he used it without question. And again, he learned that at West Point and, and he learned it from Bob Knight. Now, a lot of, uh, I have scenes in my book that uh, really show Knight's negative influence, uh, if you will, on, on Krzyzewski, but uh, listen, in the mid 1970s, his first real coaching job in college was at Indiana under Bob Knight as a grad assistant and, and Knight, was a a brilliant strategist, and I don't think Coach K was. But Knight was was someone who ruled with with fear, and Coach K saw that those Indiana teams in seventy five and seventy six, they're as good a college basketball teams as you'll ever see. And seventy six, of course, is the last unbeaten national champion. Seventy five, they lost in the NCAA tournament, unbeaten at the time. A lot of people think the seventy five team was better than the 76 team. And that was the team that coach K was a grad assistant for. And he watched how you win and, and win all the time at the highest level of college basketball. And that was the way Bob Knight coached with fear. So he learned it there as well. Now, later on their relationship completely unraveled, but he did learn a lot from Knight. and without Knight's tutelage, I'm not sure he would have been the same coach. He wouldn't have been the same coach. So, so fear was very valuable to him. And even though there are a lot of people around the country who have never seen a practice, who never sat near that Duke bench would be shocked to find out that coach K could, could be that profane and explosive. Uh, that, that is definitely a, a big part of why he was that successful at Duke. I think without question. Yeah. It's, it's a fascinating story and their, their relationship is, is an amazing one. And I know years ago I was watching a, a Christian Leitner interview and in it, he said, you know, and this may, may have been before it, it certainly was before YouTube and, and people having you know access to so many clips and videos from, from games. And, and Leitner said something to the, to the effect of, you know, coach K has a lot more Bobby Knight in him than people realize. Um, and you just talked about what he learned from Bobby at his time there. How do you make sense of that relationship? You know, I know in previous interviews, you have detailed the arc of their 
relationship, you know, uh, breaking apart, mending. I recently watched coaches, Coach K's uh, Hall of Fame induction speech in which Bobby Knight gave the introduction, which to the audience appeared to be a very warm one, um, you know, a relationship that had been mended. But I know that that's no longer the case. You know, y- you have told the story about, I believe it was an army reunion where Coach, within the past, you know, decade attempted to go up to Bobby Knight and it appeared that Bobby essentially was just shunning coach K and coach essentially said, you know, screw this guy. I'm done with, with Bobby Knight, but I don't think coach K would be who he is without having met Bobby when he was in high school. Um, you know, I know there's so much there between the two of them, but how do you make sense you know, sitting here in, in 2022 of what happened with them? You know, both the 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 you know, integral role that Bobby Knight played in Coach K's life, and how that relationship, you know, eventually ruptured into a non-relationship. Now, I think it's pretty simple that uh, Bob Knight could not handle the fact that Mike Shevsky surpassed him <laughs> as a former player and protege. He just couldn't deal with it, and that created all the problems. And and that Hall of Fame speech you referenced, uh, Knight did a terrific job in that. And he rose to the occasion, but Mike didn't even want him to give that speech initially. Pete Newell, who was a friend of both, the legendary coach, he talked, uh, he was one of the people who talked Coach K into, into inviting uh, or asking Knight to be his presenter at the Hall of Fame because Newell said, you have to fix this. He has to be the one who presents you. And so Coach K broke down and said, okay, and asked him. And Knight did deliver a terrific uh, speech. And, and Knight was, he could be so good in, mm-hmm. in settings like that. But I remember in the audience and looking at the same film of that speech, Mickey Krzyzewski was holding on the mic for dear life. Like she knew, and they both knew at any moment, this could get ugly and he could say something inappropriate. You could just see, they were just trying to get through it and without incident. And, and they did, and it was great. And, and there's no denying that, but I think the fact that Coach K really didn't want to ask him to deliver that speech pretty much says it all. He did 95% of the work in, in trying to maintain, repair, and keep the relationship over the years. And he just got tired of doing that. Hmm. And uh, you know, Bob Knight was with ESPN and broadcasting the game against Michigan State in Madison Square Garden in 2011, December of 2011, when, when uh, Coach K broke his all-time Division I victories record with 903 and Knight didn't even want to be there. He told people mm. he didn't want to do color for that game. He, he walked in wearing a green shirt, a Michigan state color. And uh, most people did not think that was an accident. And after the game, Krzyzewski, uh goes over, gives Knight a hug. And Knight says, boy, you did pretty good for a kid who couldn't shoot. And <laughs> Krzyzewski's like, he's heard, he'd heard that like 300 times over the years. And I just thought it was an inappropriate thing to say, given the moment. And he had just expressed his love to the man. And that's what he came back with. Krzyzewski was the leading scorer in the, in the Chicago Catholic High School League uh, two years in a row. He could shoot. He always felt that Knight wouldn't let him shoot at Army. But on the ride back uh, on the plane, he told his wife that he was done with Knight and that uh, he was he was pissed off that Knight had said that. And he had told other people the same thing. And so finally in 2015 at Pinehurst at a West Point reunion, when, when Knight did shun him, as you said, he, he walked out of the room and some of his former West Point teammates followed him and he told them that this is really the last time. I am not trying anymore. I am bleeping done with this guy. And he meant it. That, that's, that is the last time they had any meaningful conversation and they didn't have a conversation because Knight refused to talk to Coach K that night. So it, it's it's sad and it's a shame, but... 98, 99% of the blame belongs to Bob Knight on that one. Yeah. And you said earlier that the reason you think that so much of this drama has unfolded over the years is because, you know, Bobby Knight couldn't handle the fact that Coach K became Coach K. Uh, why is that? What is it about, you know, what, what Bobby Knight witnessed uh, that caused that reaction as, in him? Is it just raw envy? What, how, do you, how do you assess that? From Bobby Knight's perspective. Yeah, he couldn't accept the fact that an inferior or somebody looked at as a subordinate, who he was at the time as a player and grad assistant, and someone that uh, he helped uh, 
a lot in his career. He helped him get the army job. He helped him get the Duke job. And how dare you now surpass me after I did all this for you? I think there was a little bit of that. And also he was reading some quotes in different publications, Sports Illustrated, Curry Kirkpatrick. There's a famous article he wrote, actually not even quoting Coach K. It was an unnamed Coach K friend saying that the relationship was over and Mike wants to establish distance between himself and Knight, largely because of Knight's behavior. Hmm. Let's face it, if you were a protege of Bob Knight's and you're witnessing his behavior over the years, you need some distance between yourself, your career, your legacy, and his, I think, without question. So Coach K was trying to establish that, and Knight didn't like that. But it was, uh, yeah, a simple case of, I think there was envy there and uh, sort of how dare you surpass me after everything I did for you. And it is a shame that it unfolded the way it did because they're two of the biggest figures, if not the biggest, in the history of the sport. And in some ways, it was like the Belichick-Parcells relationship. Hmm. But Belichick and Parcells repaired most of it, and they have a decent relationship today, not a great one. They actually never had a great one. Hmm. But but I think it was similar as Parcells saw Belichick surpass him and had trouble with it, and that created tension in the in the relationship, and you saw that with Knight and uh, Coach K. Yeah. We've talked about some of the darker aspects of the of the Coach K personality and, and the relationship with he and Bobby Knight, but you know, the, on senior night, the, in the last game Coach K had in Cameron just a couple of months ago against North Carolina, you know, dozens of former Duke players came back. You know, these are people who are multimillionaires. Many of them are former NBA players. They have a lot going on. They made a point to come to Durham and to be there for Coach, and they were all wearing white Duke shirts. Um, that doesn't happen, I don't think, without a lot of respect and a lot of time spent on relationships. And I know this is a theme you talk about a lot in in the book about Coach K is is his generosity of time with especially former players who no longer are officially associated with him in being a part of their life over the years. And as I read your book and learn about Coach K's life, to me, that seems like that might be the most enduring legacy in in the program in general is what he gave to his former players. Talk about that a little bit. What what is it? You know, I, I think at the beginning of the book you mentioned that a former army point guard and his family were astonished that a coach had given them so much of his time and didn't know how he had found the time in his life to be able to give so much to somebody that really on a day-to-day basis he knew decades ago. Um, what did you learn about coach in relationship in relation to how he views relationships and how he prioritized them during his career? Well, uh, Joe McGinnis was uh, his last point guard at Army, and he was dying of of cancer, unfortunately, six years ago. And Coach K was still in his life, and he was trying to get him the best doctors in New York and and at Duke as well. And and he was sending him texts, encouraging him to keep fighting, keep fighting. And so uh, I just found, I, and some people ask me why I opened the book with this story. And, and so Joe McGinnis actually, in part from a big Irish Catholic family like mine and lived about 15 minutes from where I live on the New York, New Jersey border. And I, I just found it fascinating that for, that Coach K stayed, was still in touch with him and still involved in his care. Here's a, again, he was his point guard at Army. They didn't have a lot of success together. And he was he was still trying to do a lot for this man. And in his dying days, trying to convince him to keep fighting. And, and you still have a chance here. And and and, and also that uh, this man, Joe McGinnis, when he realized he was dying and he was not going to to win this battle. And he needed to tell Coach K before he died that I just need you to know I didn't quit. And and so the cancer had robbed his ability to speak in, in his final days. So he was able to communicate that to his brother. His brother is standing at his deathbed and on the phone with Coach K telling him that my brother wants you to know that he didn't quit. And obviously, Coach K said, I knew that already. And mm-hmm. but I just thought, wow, that was a powerful thing to me that this guy, he hadn't been coached by Coach K in forever. Again, they didn't have a lot of success together in that final year at, at Army, and and 
that meant so much to him to be able to tell his coach before he died that I, I did not quit. So the the impact of Coach K on his players, I thought that was a pretty profound story. And that's why I opened the book with it. But not just his players, too. I mean, he's a handwritten letter machine hmm. when it came to being contacted by people who had sick children, relatives with cancer, Duke fans who were gravely ill. And he was unbelievable in those circumstances and, and devoting his time. And people were astonished at how much time he could give and just responding to all those requests, which were nonstop. And you can't take that away from him. In some ways, I I don't know. And I, I focused the, so a lot maybe in the book on his flaws because I think he was looked at as a saint-like figure. And and uh, maybe with Belichick, I did the opposite and focused a little bit more on, on the positives because you're trying to give the other side of the personality to the reader who might not be aware of it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, perhaps I didn't spend enough time on things like this. But yeah, there's a reason why 90 or so of his former players gave up their weekend to be there to to honor him in Cameron that last home game, which they lost, unfortunately. And and you did see that other side of Coach K come out after that loss when he rebuked the crowd, he rebuked his current players, and he even rebuked his former players. So I think that was appropriate as well. But yeah, he is. Uh, uh, relationships were were really everything to him, and and speak to the impact that he had on the the program. I know uh, fans of of other big time teams they roll their eyes when they hear about the brotherhood, and. It, and but I, I actually think it's it's a real genuine thing. Mm. I, I think he really has established a family there, and that word gets used a lot in sports when it really doesn't apply. But I think in the case of Duke basketball and his former players at Duke and Army, it does apply. I think it's it's the real thing. Yeah, and in terms of his time allocation, you know, on a I'd be curious to know in your day to day in your research of of his day to day life. You know, as you just mentioned, the the demands on his time were endless. The man was a father of three, had a spouse, had a program to run, had recruiting to run. Did he never sleep? How on a day-to-day basis was he able to create the time and make the energy to respond to all of these people? You know, I know for myself, just being at Duke when I was, maybe the most striking thing about coach was how generous he was with his time to the students. You know, I remember when I was a freshman, apparently every year he would introduce the new recruits to the freshman, uh, the, the incoming freshman student body. And he waited afterwards, after he gave his speech and talked to every single student who wanted to be there and wanted to have a few minutes of, of talking with him. I, I saw the same thing in Cameron over the summers where he would just be hanging out after a practice and it was like walking up to a stranger at the post office and he would just sit there or stand there uh, and in an unhurried way, talk to anybody who wanted to to come in and speak to him. And I, I do think that speaks very well of him and speaks to his priorities. But on a day-to-day basis, did he have a just an insane schedule that allowed him to do that? Could he bypass sleep in a way that most people can't? What did you learn about his his habits? Yeah, I know Mike Bray, his former assistant, now the head coach at Notre Dame, he said he's just like a machine. He's not human. You know, after games, they'd be back at his house. They'd order pizza and they'd watch tape of, of the game until four in the morning. Sometimes, now again, when after he hit 70, I think he backed off this just a little bit. Not much, though. But Mike Bray said back in the day, so we're we're talking now in the 80s and 90s and he said sometimes we, the assistant coaches would leave his house after games so late that the morning newspaper was there. And and Mike Bray, would, it would sometimes be at the end of the driveway. I would pick up his newspaper when I was leaving at 5 a.m., 6 a.m., and throw it onto his porch to get it closer to the house. So he said he just he doesn't sleep much, and he's he's just an absolute machine. Now, this is also why he had the breakdown he had in the mid-'90s when he just drove himself to physical and mental exhaustion and nearly, nearly quit and actually offered his resignation to Tom Butters, the AD at the time. So we're talking 1995 now. And he did back off a little bit. His wife stepped in and basically gave him the only ultimatum she ever did give him. 
And, and, and that is you either go to the doctors or I'm out of here. And that was effectively what she told him. And, and he went to the doctors and he came back and he did cut down on some of his commitments and realized he couldn't say yes to every single thing. But it wasn't much. His change there in 95, when he came back after missing most of that season, that was a terrible season, of course, under mm-hmm. Pete Gaudet. Uh, he did change some things, but still, he was a workaholic. That was never going to be something that he changed. And and I think that driving force of his personality, working 19-hour, 18-hour workdays like Belichick did and still does in New England, I think is the centerpiece of everything there. And driven by uh, the competitive raise that he had, that I think, again, traces back to his upbringing in Chicago. Yeah. I know we're getting towards the end of the conversation, and there are a couple more things we could talk for hours. I'm sure about about him and the Duke program. Um, one thing that I, I I would be curious to get your thoughts on is what are the primary lessons that you think that you know young men who now will no longer be able to learn, you know, from the example of Coach K in college basketball. What are the primary principles or lessons you think that? Coach K is leaving behind that he embodied in his life that he would that he he tried to instill in his players and the student body that you know might be helpful in crafting better people, better men. What were the principles that you think really are are going to endure that he he tried to live by? We've obviously talked about his flaws, but on in the the better angels of his nature, what what really do you think will resonate over time? with people who were associated with him and it might be helpful for people who will never actually get to play under him or, or won't know him in the way that people who are around during his time have been able to. I think some of it is not terribly profound, but the, the, the work ethic and treating the attention to detail every day, treating every day, like an opportunity to win that day. And I found it uh, and I actually asked him a question in his final press conference as Duke coach after losing in the final four to North Carolina about it. Well, basically it was a better answer than it was a, a, a question. And, and, and what he tried to get across was, I think I asked him about the final five minutes against Michigan state in round two and how that was really where the, the run started yeah. and his kids showed him something as freshman in that game in the final five minutes down five points against a really tough, albeit mediocre Tom Izzo team that they hadn't really shown uh, intense end game moments during the, during the regular season, I thought. And that, that was the moment where, okay, now we can get to the final four. And he, he started answering the question that it was really that and, and also some other moments in the tournament that would stay with him beyond the, the pain of losing to North Carolina. But he talked about just a long life being in the arena and how he was in the arena for so long. And when you're in the arena, and it's the, the, the famous uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, line, I mm-hmm. guess, but you're, you're putting it on the line. and. When you, when you do that, you cannot be afraid to have your heart broken and because it will get broken when you put it on the line and particularly on a public stage like that. And so they won it all five times, but he had his heart broken a lot of times, a lot more than five times in his coaching career in the postseason. And he was willing to do that. And, and I think it's uh, give it your all every day and accept the consequences and the rewards with Grace, and I think he did most of the time in defeat. Mm-hmm. He could be a very uh, gracious loser, uh, but I, I think to me it was showing people it's okay to have your heart broken. And when when he said after that last game that it was a joyous thing to see his players crying in in the locker room, I had never heard a coach say that after a crushing defeat. I I knew what he meant, and he explained it. And it was. You, you will either have tears of joy or tears of, of great sadness. But if you, if you have tears, that means that your kids, your players cared so deeply about what you were trying to accomplish. And that's really all you can ask. They gave you everything they had. They cared as much as you did. And they ended up losing. And they cried because of what they lost and everything they gave. And they had nothing left to give but those tears. And so uh, that really uh, struck me as as a profound uh, moment and thing to say after coaching your final game. And but that enduring message of put it on the line every day, 
even if it means sometimes you'll get your heart broken. Not everybody's willing to do that. And he was. And, mm-hmm. and I think it was a great example to set to to a lot of people who who watched his iconic career. Yeah, I love that. Uh, the last question I want to a- ask you, and th- these will be merged as two questions in one. Um, the first, I'm not sure if you've ever been asked this or if coach has ever been asked this directly, but I know as, as an alum, as somebody who watches a lot of Duke games with Duke alums, you know, the, you, you can't watch coach K games, you know, as he's gotten into his sixties and seventies and seen that his jet black hair has remained. Uh, the first question is, what do you know about whether he dyes his hair? And the last, uh, the last question is, uh, do you think he is the best basketball coach in history? Um, you can take those two however you'd like. Well, as far as the hair is concerned, I know <laughs> his friends believe he, he uses hair coloring. And so I've never asked him that question. And uh, I think he's laughed it off and said <laughs> no. But I, I will say that his friends believe he's using some, some – uh, he's getting some artificial help there. It's just at, at age – 75. I don't know anybody who has jet black hair. Do you? I, I just, I, I, I guess it's possible that it's natural, but it, it's, it's sort of hard to believe. So I suspect that uh, strongly that he does use some help there. But I, I think as, uh, as far as the greatest basketball coach of all time, you can make a case college or pro for him. I think it's more difficult to do it in the pros because you're penalized for winning. And by that, I mean, when you win a championship in the next draft, you draft last. In college basketball, when you win a championship or have success, the best high school players in the country are still available to you. In fact, they want to play for you even more than they did before. So I think you and he made a smart decision turning down the Lakers in 04, even though Kobe Bryant really recruited him to to coach the Lakers because he ended up getting the best of both worlds. He uh, protected his winning percentage by staying at the college level, where I do think it is easier to protect your winning percentage. And he got to coach the best NBA players in the world at the Olympics and won three gold medals. So when you look at 13 final fours, which is one more than John Wooden, the five national titles, three Olympic gold medals, two world championships with NBA players, you could certainly make the case he's the best ever college or pro. I'll make the case that he's the best ever in college basketball. Now, some people say John Wooden won 10 national titles to his five. How could you put him ahead of Wooden? Well, I think in the period that Mike dominated, that period, it was more difficult to dominate and much more difficult than Wooden's era. John Wooden had to win four games to win a national title. Krzyzewski had to win six. That's a big difference. Mm. And a lot of teams didn't make the NCAA tournament that were worthy back in Wooden's day because of the system, the way it was set up. When you look at the one and done era that Coach K had to adapt to later in his career, the transient nature now college basketball the basically now you have free agency so he had to deal with that at the end of his career and wouldn't had a monopoly on on the best high school talent in the country bill walton and, and lou alcinder uh kareem abdul jabbar they were never going anywhere else they were going to ucla that's not the case today with the proliferation of of cable networks so many division one programs have access just visibility and, and the talent is spread out all over the country. That was not the case in Wooden's day. On top of that, you could add uh, Lou Carnesecca was a Hall of Fame coach at St. John's. You could add his 528 or 26 victories on top of Wooden's total at 664, and you would still not get to Mike Krzyzewski's win total of uh, 1,200 plus. So, so I think that uh, on, on those fronts that I would put Krzyzewski one and John Wooden one A in the history of college basketball. Yeah. Ian, I want to say as a, as a Duke fan, as a Duke grad, um, I think as somebody who just aspires to have an accurate depiction of the program and of the man who's been leading that program for so many years, I want to thank you for the, the time and the effort you, know, you have given to try to paint that picture. Um, I've been... Uh, excited to to have this conversation and talk to you, and I, I really appreciate the effort you made in um, in creating what you did. I think it's it's just fascinating, and I think it's going to be um, interesting to a lot of people like myself who are who are curious about who this man is and how he was able to achieve what he did. Well, thanks a lot, Dan. And I, I've heard from a lot of Duke officials, some who I dealt with during the process, some who were very close to Mike Shashevsky, who said that 
uh, two things. One, they thought the book was fair, very fair. And they thought I was very transparent in the process and letting Duke know, giving them the opportunity, uh, Mike and others to comment on things that they might not have loved in the book if they wanted to try to correct or amend the record. If that needed to happen, they all had that opportunity before publication. They knew exactly what was going to be in my Coach K book. So um, I think hearing that from them, from, from Duke University, that, hey, we didn't love every paragraph in it, but you were very fair and very transparent. And we appreciate that. Um, to me, fairness is everything. So mm. um, that, that was very important for me to hear. Yeah, fair enough. Thanks so much for the time, man. It was great to meet you. All right, same here, Dan. Thank you. My Thanks, pleasure. Dan. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. 